Father's Day is a day where we get to celebrate dads, and we deserve a day, I think, um, just a day, because we're busy the rest of the year, right, making sure that we take care of our families, making sure that we're pointing them toward the Lord, but I love Father's Day. My dad lives in California. They're on a two-hour uh, time difference, and so I haven't called him yet to tell him Happy Father's Day, but I will, and uh, my youngest son isn't here today. He'll tell me Happy Father's Day because his mama will remind him to do that if he forgets. You ladies are great at doing that. The older son Richard's here, of course, so it's been a great Father's Day already. And my first uh, grandfather's day, Richard's first Father's Day. And I was thinking about the role of fathers, thinking about our job. And I believe that our job is to prepare our kids, our children, for eternity. And I don't want that to sound morbid. I don't want that to sound, um, you know, even super spiritual. I just want to be very practical. As we continue to build our worldview together, as we craft our biblical worldview, we understand that this life that we enjoy right now is just a breath. The Bible calls it a vapor. Here today and gone tomorrow. When you go to any cemetery anywhere, you see tombstones marking a life. Some lives are well-lived, some lives are wasted, some somewhere in between. Almost every tombstone or grave marker has a year that you're born. We can't control that. It has the year that we die. We certainly shouldn't control that. It has a dash. And the dash in the middle is all we can control. But the problem is, is that sometimes we fathers, we spend so much time trying to make sure our kids are prepared for the dash, that our families are set up for the dash, that we're living for the vapor or for the mist, that we fail to prepare our kids for eternity. So, since we believe as Christians that this life is just a vapor, just a passing dash, a mist that's here today and gone tomorrow, we want to make sure that we find our purpose, that our kids, our our families find our purpose, that if we're married, our spouses, we can nudge them and encourage them toward their purpose, toward a meaning, toward their purpose, so that when we leave this life behind, we have prepared our kids for eternity. And I believe that's the job of a father. So whatever you've done yesterday or last week or last year, that's behind. What we do today, well, that's ahead. And some of us have kids that's still in the home. Some have kids outside the home. Some not, don't have kids at all, but are influential in other kids' lives. And so the role that we play, I think, is critically important because you and I are helping to prepare people for eternity. That's what really matters. Success, achievement, status here in this life, it comes, it goes. Influencing people toward Jesus, that's the point. Meaning and significance comes from selling out to that vision and preparing the people around us and the people we influence for the real life to come. That's being a father. So today we're going to talk about Joshua, who was in a sense a father, not like Abraham was, but a father figure to a nation, the nation of Israel. And many of you or some of you have said, how in the world did we get back to Joshua? Because oftentimes we're in a series and the series, it starts with a week and it goes eight weeks and it ends with a week and you know where we're going and I have my, my title and I have my you know, outlines and I've got everything sort of laid out. And right now we're kind of doing one at a time. We're doing individual messages, but oftentimes these individual messages become a theme or a series and that's what's happened here. We started in Matthew 25, and then we backed up to earlier in Matthew, and then we moved over to Hebrews and ended up in Hebrews chapter 5, and several times have mentioned the story of the children of Israel crossing the Jordan River, leaving Egypt in their captivity, wandering around in the wilderness, and God protecting and providing for them. And it's been mentioned in Scripture several times by authors of different books, and so you and I, we look at these and we learn from them, and that's the reason that we're all the way back 
in Joshua, talking about one of the Apostle Paul's favorite stories, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament, and I'm sure it's one of yours if you're familiar with it yet. We study the Old Testament for at least three reasons. One is it teaches us history of the Jewish people, and that's really important, the children of Israel. Now, something that's also important to note is sometimes people, Christians, American Christians, make a mistake, and we put ourselves in the place of the Jewish nation or people when we read the Old Testament, and we think that we're God's chosen people. We're not. The Jews, the children of Israel, are God's chosen people. We are a nation who began Christian, who are supposed to be and responsible for continuing in a Christian way, and can learn from Israel and from the principles of God's protection, provision, providing, directing in the Old Testament. But when the Bible says the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, we Americans sometimes immediately put America in there. We miss the whole point. It teaches us the history of the Jewish people and God's relationship to them. It teaches us the nature and character of God and how God is faithful yesterday. He's faithful today and will be tomorrow. That God's powerful, so powerful that all of the world's events, everything, the good and the bad, he works together, brings about his good. That he's going to be faithful in the future that his promises never fail. The third thing that the Old Testament is good for, and there are other things that the Old Testament is beneficial for, but it's pointing us toward Jesus. All throughout the Old Testament, stories that point toward Jesus, people who point toward Jesus, Christ figures who come and go and do things that are Christ-like, even though it wasn't Jesus himself, pointing us toward Jesus. And so the Old Testament is scripture, which means it's 100% true. I believe that that it's without any mixture of error, that in its original form, as inspired by the Holy Spirit and written down by human authors, you can bank your very life on the fact that it's accurate. I believe that Scripture is the sole authority for what we do and what we believe. So that means that when I preach, when we teach, as we lead the church, the leaders of Capital City Church, we do it in a way that we think is consistent with Scripture because we believe that's our blueprint, our guidebook for life. So when I'm teaching you these things, and when I'm trying to bring these principles out to you, the things that I've enjoyed so much over the last few weeks, I want you to keep this in mind. I want you to look at the children of Israel as a group of people, but you also can look at them as one entire person in a sense, which is a little dismissive when you take a whole group of people and give them one personality, but you kind of have to do it because the Bible does that from time to time. And so we look at them both as uh, individuals, and if by this point in the children of Israel and the nation of Israel's history, it was up to two million people, a million and a half people, some very minimum I've read was 750,000 people, a lot of people. And we look at them and they have moments of obedience, moments of doubt, moments of disobedience, punishment from God, rewarding and, and blessing from God, and we can relate so much to their story. And so today we pick up in the book of Joshua. And I want to remind you about where we left off last week, because some of you have slept since then. Maybe even some of you weren't here last week, which is okay. It's the summer. I get it. Matter of fact, Father's Day, I should thank you for being here today, because Father's Day, as much as I don't like to admit this, is the lowest attended worship Sunday in the entire year nationwide. And so I love the fact that you've chosen to be here and that you're in worship this morning. If you're joining with us online, I enjoy that and love that as well. Good morning, and thank you for being here. But you, by showing up and being here, have put yourself in a spot where God can bless you, and I can't wait to share this story with you. Now, we talked last week 
about the transition of leadership between Moses and Joshua. We talked about the children of Israel, how they left Egypt, and their parents, these people, by the time we're reading this story, their parents and grandparents had seen phenomenal blessing. They had seen God part the, the, a huge sea in the middle of a desert so that they could go through and be saved from the Egyptian soldiers. They wandered around in the wilderness after leaving captivity and slavery, and they were hungry, and so God gave them food to eat. The food sprung up from the ground. They called it manna, which literally means, what is this? They had rules for eating manna because they wanted to hoard the manna and hide it in their tents. And when they did that, it rotted and they couldn't keep it overnight or for, for very long because God wanted to show them that each day he would provide for them. They had issues about needing to know where to go. They didn't know where to go. And so God said, all right, no problem. I'll put a pillar of cloud up by day and you can follow that pillar of cloud. And at night, I'm going to remind you of my presence because nights can be scary. And so there'll be a pillar of fire there. And you can follow that pillar of fire or at least look at the pillar of fire in the distance and know that I am with you. And the children of Israel learned to live that way. They had an issue with snake bites. Snake bites were common in the Old Testament. And even we read about them relating to the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. I don't like snakes. They bit people in the Old Testament. They bit a bunch of the children of Israel as they were wandering around in the desert. And there had to be some provisions for snake bites and snake bite remedy. But the worst problem or the worst part of this story is that this entire nation, this generation of people, were led up to the banks of a Jordan River where God was going to lead them out of the wilderness, out of the desert, into the promised land, let them go to the place he'd promised and prepared for them. Their parents and grandparents got to the point where they looked across the Jordan, sent some spies. The spies came back and said, too much, too big, too scary. And so the children of Israel said no. And they had to wander again in the wilderness until all of them died. Now we find them full circle, the kids of the disobedient, back at the banks of the Jordan. With a leader who had been trained by his leader, Moses, to be a wandering leader, not a warrior, had picked up the mantle of being a warrior, getting ready to go into the promised land to fight and have God deliver the promised land. And we learned a couple things last week that are important. Now, remember the principle. The principle was that oftentimes in our walk with God, we're not going to have certainty about the future. We're not going to know what's going to happen in a week, in a year. Where am I going to be in five years, in 10 years? But we will have clarity as to what we need to do now. And that's what God was teaching Joshua, what he had taught Moses, and what he's teaching us. We learned that omniscience is not a prerequisite to faith. You know what omniscience is? Yeah, you all know. I know it's early, and some of you are just having your first cup of coffee. Omniscience, to know everything. You don't have to know everything. And you can still have a really strong and solid faith. Now, you and I could stop right there. We could sit and have a conversation, and I could ask you, all right, be honest with me. How comfortable are you with this? Can you say to the Lord, God, I don't know everything. Well, I could say that. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know why bad things happen to me. I don't know why bad things happen to the people I love. I don't know why this world's confusing. I don't know why life sometimes throws curveballs. I don't know what's going to happen. But I know you. And I choose to trust you. And I will live a life of faith even though I'm not omniscient. Can you say that? Now, don't nod your head necessarily. I'm not trying to put you on the spot if you can't because we're getting there together. This is the point of what we're doing. It's more important to know what to do now than to know what's going to happen next. 
Now, remember Joshua said this. This is at the end of Joshua's life, where we went all the way. We jump all the way to the end of Joshua's life. After Joshua had learned these lessons, learned them by, by putting his feet in the fire. And he said, and this is the passage we ended up with last week, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Now, remember we talked about that. He's like, look, you want to serve God? Great. If you don't, then you have to decide who you're going to serve. You can serve yourself. You can serve the people of the past. You can serve those who, you know, the, the, the people who have told you lies and deceived you. You can serve, you know, the, the job that you had, the relationships you pursued. You can serve the 401k. You can serve the, you know, the new things that you want to buy. You can serve, you know, you can serve whatever you want to serve. If serving God seems undesirable to be, you have to choose who you're going to serve. Now, I mentioned to you, this is the job of a dad. This is the job of a father, of a man is to point people to live beyond the temporary reality of this dash that we call life and to focus on eternity and the things that matter. And so we, in a sense, have to ask ourselves the question, is serving the Lord undesirable to me? Or am I ready to step out and live that life of faith? And then at the end, he says, this is my choice. He throws down the gauntlet. He makes a life statement Put it on a tombstone. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Now, I'm going to assume that if we're not there, we want to get there. We want to say, but as for me and the people I influence, but as for me and the kids who are in my home, but as for me and my adult kids, my grandkids, the people whose kids that I can influence, my friends, those who are in my life, as for me and the people I'm around, I will do whatever I can to nudge them toward the reality of the kingdom of God and remind them that this life is just a breath and we live for what is to come. Joshua got it. He wanted the children of Israel to get it. He wants you and I to get it. And so we begin this story today or pick this story up today with the children of Israel back on the banks of the Jordan River where their parents and grandparents had failed so miserably and they're getting another chance. They're getting the chance to get it right. So I want to take you to that passage. It's in Joshua chapter 3. And the Bible simply says, early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. Now, I should stop right there and say that this was a big deal for them to get back to the banks of the Jordan River, that they were being brought to a place that scared them, a place they'd heard their grandparents and parents talk about. And I want to remind you that they were comfortable in the wilderness. Now, some of us have become so comfortable in our wilderness, in the desert, that we don't want to leave. And that would be a question that I would have to you today. Are you so comfortable in the desert or in the wilderness in your life that you really don't want to leave? You know that the life you're living is not the life God has in mind. You hear from time to time a preacher like me standing up on a stage, banging a Bible, so to speak, saying there's a different way, there's a different way. And you're like, yeah, maybe, but you know what? And this is what these people, the children of Israel would have said. It's what you and I say. It's what I've always known. They didn't know Egypt they didn't know anything but wandering in the wilderness. They knew manna. They knew pillars of cloud and pillars of fire. They knew snakes. They knew sand. They didn't know anything else. They blame it on their parents. I was raised this way. I was raised to be this way. This is the way I'm going to be. I grew up this way. I was raised this way. 
I don't know anything else. If it was good enough for my grandpa, it's good enough for me. I don't think I want to go anywhere else. I want to stay in the wilderness. Now, the wilderness for you and for me is living in the dash. It's living in the breath. It's grabbing onto the vapor, okay? We can't live in the wilderness any longer. We have to live for the life beyond, to invest in the dash and the vapor, to live our purpose and find our meaning. And so Joshua is calling these people, these children of Israel, I'm calling you to think about something else, to move beyond the desert, to leave the wilderness behind. And the problem for them is they didn't really have a choice. Because the wilderness before this moment was where they had to be. And so God protected. He fed them with manna. He directed them with fire and with cloud. But if they had chosen not to take that step across the Jordan River, they would no longer have had God's protection, his direction. They'd have been on their own. And what a terrible place to be is to have stepped out of God's, his will. Telling him you'd rather live on your own than according to his plan. And grabbing a hold of the dash or the breath of this life, just like grabbing the sand in that desert, watching it slip through your hands until you have nothing left. And Joshua begs the people, God encourages the people, do you want to leave the wilderness behind? That'd be the question I would ask you. I mean, this life, it's all we know. But is there, since there, there must be something more, something more important, something bigger. Now, the Jordan River represents a lot of things to us. The Jordan River represents something in your life. For some, it's salvation, choosing to follow Jesus Christ to make that decision a little scary. I mean, we're not 100% sure, but we choose and we all in. Here I am. I want to follow Jesus. For some people, well, it's anything that has our attention, that's overwhelming, that's bigger than you and I can do on our own where we need God's help. It could be an illness that we're facing. It could be a relationship that's breaking down. It could be a financial problem you can't solve. It could be looking for meaning and significance in life, making decisions about what's next, seeing your kids make decisions that that they're making that they shouldn't be and your heart is breaking. It could be anything. All of us deal with Jordan River experiences all the time and the principles apply for each of us as we deal with this. Even death itself is a Jordan River experience because we believe and live for the promise of the hope to come. But the way we get there, it's a little scary. At the retired adult lunch we had last Thursday, I got a whole different perspective on Jordan River experiences. All of us live in different stages of life, and we never truly understand a stage until we're there, right? Can't. We were talking about Jordan River experiences, and man, there's a lot of wisdom that comes from those who walk the road a little further than you. At least that's the way it's supposed to be. And one of these sweet ladies, one of my friends, was talking about a Jordan River experience. And she said, you know, one day, I had a husband, we'd been married a long time, decades. He had some pain in his legs, in his chest. He died, suddenly. I was alone. I didn't know what hit me. I had no idea how to cope. I didn't know what to do. Now you talk about having my attention. Here I am on the edge of the seat, going, my goodness, what did you do? She said, I did what I could do. 
just put one step in front of the other. I just kept going. And I said, what did it feel like? And she said, a tunnel. It felt like a tunnel. And then I was walking through the tunnel and that I knew that there would be a light at the end, but I didn't know when that light was gonna come, but I had no choice but to keep on going. And I what better analogy or, or illustration of a Jordan River experience at a stage that I hope none of us have to face, but many of us have or do. It's so applicable, so relevant, so important. And we have to choose this day who we're going to serve. Is following the Lord unreasonable, undesirable, unacceptable? Not for me, not for my house. We're going to serve the Lord, even if it's one foot after the other, even if it feels like a long tunnel, and we don't know when the end's going to come, because my God's faithful. He was yesterday. He is today, and he will be tomorrow. And that's the kind of God we serve. So here they are. They're camped out at the shore of the river, Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites, remember hundreds of thousands, set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. And after three days, now I want to stop at the three days, because three days is a long time, friends. Three days is sort of symbolic in Scripture. Three days was how long, I could ask you, a quiz you, I won't do that this morning. Three days was how long Jesus was in the tomb. There are a lot of three-day experiences. We serve a third-day God. We live in a second-day world. Oftentimes, the first day is when the conflict happens. The second day is when we wait. And my goodness, waiting seems like it takes forever. And then the third day, God shows up and does what it is that he says he's going to do. Three days. They're seated, camped in little tribes, broken down into family groups, broken down into friends. And they wait and they hear the flood stage roaring of the Jordan River, which would have been up to a mile wide at this point on average of 12 feet deep, a death sentence for anybody who tried to wade through it, right? And they had three days to decide what they were gonna do. The question that Joshua asked, as for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord. Can you imagine the conversations you would have? Now, here's where I wanted you to take yourself. Don't put yourself just right here where you are. Take yourself all the way back and put yourself in this scripture. Or if you wanna look at it a different way, take this scripture and take it all the way over here and wear it, try it on in your own life. You're sitting by the banks of your own Jordan River. Think about the conversations you'd have in your head. This seems crazy. Not this guy, not me. Can't be real. Maybe God's asking somebody else to go, but not this. Uh -uh, no way. Are you, I can't even swim. The self-doubt, the thoughts. Maybe you talk to your spouse, to your wife, if you have one, your husband, your kids. Well, Grandma said that he parted a, a big sea. She walked through. Remember when... and. You know, you'd be kind of pulling your stories and thinking about God's history and trying to drum up the courage. But can you imagine how much, even almost more important it would be when you're having conversations with the people who are around you about this Jordan River experience? And so I was thinking about, you know, me and you in our own lives, wondering who are the people closest to you when you're going through your Jordan River experience, the people closest to you are going to be the ones who influence you and nudge you toward faithfulness or pull you back into the dash. 
And you look to those who are closest, who are literally camped out next to you, around you. And the right kind of voices would say, God is faithful. The wrong voices would say, how about you and I just slip back into the desert and start our own business? We'll probably be okay. Maybe there's a different way. Let's see if we can get some other friends and maybe we can head back to Egypt and form a little revolt. And I was thinking about how important it is for us to have second day friends when we live in a first day world waiting through this second day waiting on this third day God so another question I might ask you is who are the people in your life that you're camping out with who are influencing you who are speaking to you are they nudging you toward faithfulness well we're just 1.2 verses into this passage, and it's so full. For those who have their notes, uh, we're not gonna get all the way done today, so don't stress out. You will get to your Father's Day lunch um, on time. Close to on time. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp giving orders to the people. Now, there are hundreds of thousands of people. They were all camped out according to tribes, broken down into groups of friends, broken down into groups of families, and they were waiting, they were watching, listening to the Jordan, thinking about the times that, you know, God's been faithful, also maybe having a little doubt because they're human, knowing that even if they cross the Jordan River, they're crazy big people over there who are scary warriors, If their grandparents and parents got it wrong, why are they better than them? You know, this is the way I was raised. This is good enough for grandpa, so it's good enough for me. And the officers go throughout the camp, and the reason they had to is there were lots of people. So you had to delegate your communication plan, walking throughout the camp, telling people, yelling. Okay, tell somebody, tell your neighbor, tell your neighbor, telephone, right? Where you whisper to somebody and they tell somebody else. They had to give instructions. They gave orders to the people, and they said, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, and the Levitical priests carrying it. You're to move out from your positions and follow it. Instruction number one, and you might say to me, if you're paying attention, I trust you are, who cares about the Ark of the Covenant? I've seen that movie. When you open it, bad things happen, right? Indiana Jones, yeah, same Ark. Well, this is the real Ark, and um, a little different. But the Ark of the Covenant represented the image and presence of God. For us, the person and presence of Jesus. Inside the ark, 10 commandments, Aaron's staff, manna, on top of the ark, a golden throne representing the judgment seat that you and I know has become the mercy seat where Jesus Christ himself would sit and now we know has sat to finish the work necessary for salvation. It represented God's faithfulness in the past, his power over circumstance, that all things work together for good for those who love him and are willing to step out and live for what's beyond the dash. His promise of a better life to come. And the first instruction was, you keep your eyes on that. Because friends, the world will compete for your focus and you can only look one place at a time. One thing that is true, you can only think one thought at a time. You can only focus on one thing. Here's something else that's true, friends. You choose what you focus on. And Joshua is telling them, choose to focus on the presence of Jesus. Because if you don't, the rest ain't gonna work. 
Focusing on the presence of Jesus is really hard because the noise, the distractions, the deception of the dash, of the breath, the vapor, clamors for thought and attention and real estate in our brain, and it takes uncommon faith to live in an uncommon way. But Joshua is calling them to more. They had the Levitical priests carrying it, which I think is kind of funny. Why is that funny? Well, the Levitical priests were, um, I mean, they were supposed to carry the ark. They had poles on the ark, and they carried it, and it was a big deal. There were things you could do and you couldn't do. You touch it, whew, you're in trouble. There's some stories in the Bible about that. Um, but the Levitical priests were the musicians. I like musicians. But if I'm going into battle with scary giants, I'm not putting them up front. Not going to happen. I don't mean to be offensive. I'm going to hit you with my guitar. You know, I want somebody with something, you know. And, but the cool thing about this is that when the Levitical priests, when they carried the ark, and they're supposed to literally, I mean, the, the crowd would part, and here they come, walking up with the presence of God, and every head turns and focuses on the presence of God, accompanying the ark. The Levitical priests were the musicians, and they played trumpets, not really trumpets, but horns, and sang songs and led the people in songs, and the songs in the Bible were triumphant songs. They were songs, listen, friends, about God, not about us. And one of the things I love about our worship team is that they sing, we sing songs about God. And so many Christian songs today are all about me. Oh, God makes me feel better. He helps me with my bad days. And if we're not careful, we turn it all around and make ourselves the stars of the show. And they sing songs and blue trumpets about my God is triumphant. My God will prevail. For those who follow him, no one can conquer. And they step in behind the musicians and focus on Jesus and say, this life of faith is the life that I'm going to live. He says, then when you see it, move out from your positions and follow it. Okay, here we go. Then you will know which way to go. Since, pay attention, we're almost done. Since, I should say, please pay attention. No, I shouldn't say pay attention. Please, please pay attention. Since, this is so important, you have never been this way before. Every single day is a day you, my friend, have not traveled before. And the life of faith is a life that leads us with clarity, but not with certainty, because we do not worship a past. We do not go back. We put one foot in front of the other with our eyes focused on Jesus, realizing that when we do this, every day will be different. We have to focus on Jesus because my experience tomorrow will be one I've never faced before. And one of the most encouraging things somebody can tell you is, you know what you're going through? I've been through that. But do you know the truth of it is they haven't been through it. They've been through something that might be similar to what you're going through, but they've never been you going through it. And so every day is different. You're wired differently. We act differently. Our experiences leading up to these things are different. And this calling out moment is so profound. Because we've never been this way before. And you'll know which way to go. 
but keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Don't go near it. Why? That's about 3,000 feet. You couldn't see it if you were too close to the ark. That many people, back up a little bit. That is just practical. That was just good leadership. Then Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Now, this is where we're going to stop today. The second thing that they were instructed to do is to consecrate themselves. Now, if I told you, consecrate yourself, you'd be like, what? I ate plenty of fiber. I mean, you wouldn't know what I was talking about, right? It doesn't make a lot of sense to us, does it? Consecrate is an Old Testament word, but a really important word with New Testament application. You and I are in a New Testament you know, type of a world. Learning from the Old Testament, consecrate yourselves is very, very important. And, and I'll just start with the New Testament application, with our application. It means to check your heart. It means for me to pray the prayer of King David as he prayed in the Psalms. God, there are things in my life I know aren't right. Give me the courage to deal with them. And God, there are things lurking in me that I don't even know are there. You gotta show them to me and I wanna get rid of them. Reveal those things in me. I break these things down into three categories. The first one are thoughts. Are any thoughts, do I have any thoughts that are displeasing to you, Lord? Sometimes we immediately go to the thoughts that we know are displeasing to God, the scandalous thoughts, the lustful thoughts, the vengeful thoughts, the murderous thoughts, but the self-absorbed thoughts, the judgmental thoughts, the hypocritical thoughts, the entitled thoughts, the me-focused thoughts, just as bad. The thoughts where I doubt God. The thoughts that allow me to become paralyzed so that I can't go forward or backward, that I'm just gonna sit where I am that I'm gonna miss God's blessing, that I'm gonna live for this dash, that I'm gonna hang on to the sand even though I watch it slip through my hands. Do I have any thoughts that are displeasing to you, God? If you reveal them to me, I confess them. Number two, actions. Pretty easy. Do I have any actions in my life that are displeasing to you, God? Well, what, what's the big deal? Who cares? We're going to miss out on the amazing things that God's going to do. We're going to miss out on God's direction. We're going to miss out on living for the life beyond if we have things in our life that we know are displeasing to God. And, and we ask him, are there any actions in my life you don't want there? Now, this is a hard one. They were looking at the example of their grandparents and parents. In many cases, it's biblical. In some cases, it's not biblical. It's the great level playing field here at the banks of the Jordan River. But I'm not talking about things your grandma told you not to do or things your mama told you not to do or things you might have may or may not have learned in Sunday school. I'm talking about you and your convictions, your informed conscience. Are there things in your life that the Holy Spirit of God is convicting you about doing and you know that it's ruining your walk of faith? And we ask God to reveal these actions and we confess them. And this is what we do. We stop, which takes courage in and of itself. It could be your own Jordan River. Number three, attitudes. Are there any thoughts? Are there any actions? Are there any attitudes displeasing to you, God? Part of this consecration, my attitudes, my pessimistic attitude, my entitled attitude, going back again to the not being approachable, being more judgmental, being standoffish, wanting to see the worst happen to people, me not being tolerant and understanding, me being so focused on myself that I'm consumed with ego, me being so focused on myself through a negative self-image that I'm being consumed by self. Me being so consumed by self with a positive overinflated self-esteem or ego, being so consumed that my attitudes are ruining my walk of faith. It's all part of it. So we ask God, actions, thoughts, attitudes, any that are displeasing to you, if there are, show them to me. 
Because when I take these steps focused on Jesus, I can't be burdened down by the values, principles, thoughts, and attitudes of the dash or I'm gonna be trapped, deceived, with a life destroyed. Consecrate yourselves. Now, the Old Testament, and this is why I'm glad we're not Old Testament, part of the consecration had to do with, like, if you're married, you couldn't have marital relations during the consecration process. You had to eat certain foods that weren't really enjoyable. You had to clean up around the house in a way that, you know, was a little special and a little extra, all symbolizing how important it was to be clean for the Lord. Here it is. For tomorrow, the Lord will do amazing things among you. I want to know what they are now. Tough. Because we don't have certainty. I mean, God's going to do what he's going to do, and we know it's going to be amazing because he says it is, but we don't know what it's going to look like. We do have clarity. And clarity is where we live. And it's how we step out in this life of faith. Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. The Lord will do amazing things. So I stop with an ellipsis, a dot, 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 and invite you to come back next week because we have, we have to continue this story because it will inspire you to live a different way. Father, thank you for my friends.